Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 133rd edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, a digital forensics, managed cybersecurity, and managed information technology firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is 2022, what's white hot in cybersecurity? Today, our guest is David G. Reese, who is of counsel in the Pittsburgh PA office of Clark Hill PLC, where he practices in the firm's cybersecurity, data protection, and privacy group. He has devoted his legal career to helping organizations traverse complex environmental, technology, and data protection challenges. It's always great to have you with us, Dave. Oh, I'm always glad to uh, participate. Well, Dave, a lot happened in cybersecurity in 2021. What is the impact in your mind of last year's developments as we move into 2022? Well, I think 2021 was really a game changer in both good and bad ways. In the bad, there were high-profile vulnerabilities and data breaches, a huge list, Excellion, Microsoft Exchange, SolarWinds, Kaseya. Colonial Pipeline, JBS Meat Processing, and the year ending with the Log4j vulnerability, plus a lot of lower profile ones. But on the good side, we had President Biden's May 2021 executive order on improving cybersecurity, the June White House memo on protecting against ransomware. There was adoption of additional recommendations from the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, additional funding and resources for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, enhanced cooperation among federal agencies and with the private sector, just a really lot. So there have been continuing challenges, but they've been countered by substantial progress in government and private protection and response. I'm with you on that. We certainly thought that a lot has been done recently that had gone undone before. So we're we're happy for the forward movement, too. Dave, can you tell us a little bit more uh, what some of the last year's high-profile data breaches and vulnerabilities were? We could spend the whole session talking about them. There were so many of them, and, and I laundry listed them. But, but just, you know, a few observations. You know, first, there were supply chain vulnerabilities and breaches where it didn't happen you know, to the company or organization that was targeted, but it happened uh, outside it. And you know, there are ones like SolarWinds. You know, it is a network management software, and attackers compromised it and actually sent fake updates to it to compromise the companies that were using it. There were Excellion and Microsoft Exchange one for secure file transfer, the other for uh, you know email and contacts and, and calendar. Both of them, there were vulnerabilities in the ones that were installed on customers' premises, not in the cloud services. Both of them, there were vulnerabilities that were exploited and an awful lot of companies and law firms that were compromised. Colonial Pipeline and JBS Meat Processing were the big 
ransomware attacks that, that threatened critical infrastructure. And the year ended with the log4j vulnerability in Apache software. Jen Easterly, who's the director of CISA, said that it's one of the most serious, if not the most serious, that she's seen her in her whole career. You know, most observers think that there was a really good response by the government and private sector to log4j, probably in large part because of the things that happened earlier in the year to uh, improve the national response to cybersecurity. Day the log4j, I guess, was particularly bad because of the, the reach that it had, right, across multiple businesses and multiple environments. I mean, that's why it just blew up. It was estimated that, that there were hundreds of millions of installations of it worldwide. Well, tell us what's in uh, President Biden's May 2021 executive order on improving cybersecurity, because there was a lot packed into that. There was, and, and I'm sure that, that it was in the works for a long time. The order didn't just come out right after a couple of the high-profile breaches and the White House scrambled to put it together. It, it, it's obvious that it was in process. So it's intended to modernize cybersecurity defenses by protecting federal networks, by improving information sharing between the government and the private sector, and strengthening the country's ability to respond to uh, cyber incidents. So it is directed to the civilian government agencies, not the ones involved in national defense and national security. And by the way, President Biden issued a, a national security memorandum just a couple of days ago to require some of the things, same things for uh, the national security sector. But it has some specific requirements for uh, CISA and for other federal agencies and then recommends them for the private sector. Can you talk a little bit, Dave, about some of the best practices that are included in that order? There's kind of two sets, and best practices is, is my term for them. The order talks about basic security measures. It identifies five of them. The first is to back up data, system images, and configurations, and to test the backups, to update and patch systems promptly, Third, to test the incident response plan or to prepare one if you don't have it. Four, to check security through you know, some type of third-party review like penetration testing. And five, to segment networks. So it identifies those five as the basics. Then it goes on to discuss additional safeguards like logging, multi-factor authentication, extended detection and response, which are advanced security tools that we've talked about in the past, use of secure cloud services, and adopting uh, a zero-trust architecture. So as I mentioned, these are required for federal civilian agencies. They're likely to be required for government contractors. They will most likely be considered in determining best practices for everyone else. I have no doubt of that, and and I'm especially fond of zero trust because when we go out and talk to lawyers, which we do a lot, it seems like the average lawyer does not know anything about zero trust or has only heard the term. So it's only big law that seems to have really kind of moved to get to zero trust. They're going to get there first anyway, but it's coming to everybody. They just need to figure that out. So can you explain in simple language what zero trust is and why it's so important to law firms? It's an architecture or an approach. It's not a specific product. 
or a specific technology like multi-factor authentication. It's a more secure approach to authentication and access control. So, you know, the old approach has been called trust, but verify. Zero trust is never trust and always verify. And, and just kind of an example, they used to always use the example of the castle with the wall and the moat, and that's the network that you're protecting. In the old system for zero trust, that would be that you have to identify yourself to get over the moat and into the gate. But then if you want to go into the treasury or to another secure place within the castle, you have to identify yourself again and again as you go through different places. Now, we all know that that old model doesn't work because systems and information are distributed. They're no longer in the castle. But but that's the concept that every time an individual, a user is going to access additional resources they have to authenticate. And hopefully that's going to be through technology so people don't have to manually, you know, put in a username and password and MFA for every resource that they access. So it'll be the current kind of authentication that we're using today, but then hopefully something that is automated that tags along when the user goes to additional resources. One thing that that makes people's heads explode, though, is that it's not just about the users, right? It's access to any data. So even if you have applications that are accessing databases, et cetera, like that, they need to authenticate, you know, as well. And then you don't trust that connection for the entirety of the connection, right? You have to come back and re-verify on a periodic basis. And people, when they start to hear that, they go, oh my gosh, you know, it's, they could just see this, like I said, their heads explode. They do explode. And, and I think one of the things that we often say that is helpful to them is that they need a little bit of a primer. And if you want to do that, there is an article on the Sensei Enterprises site, if you just go to the articles and it's free and we don't want your email and we don't ask you for, you know, any of your information in order to get the article. It's just out there. It's really a very simple guide to Zero Trust and why it's so important to law firms. So that's a a resource you might start to learn from if you're not familiar with it. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Get civil and you get a fast, custom-built website that looks great, brings you clients, and drops them right into your firm's systems. Civil partners perfectly with small firms by building the fastest sites in legal, handling digital marketing, enhancing your leads, and providing transparent analytics. They're civil to your other tech, too. Civil websites integrate with all legal case management systems, including Clio, Smokeball, MyCase, and Lawmatics. Get a free site audit with a no-obligation 15-minute demo about what Civil can do for your website. GetCivil.com. That's G-E-T-C-I-V-I-L-L-E.com. All rise with Civil. A website from Civil fills your new client pipeline. Prospects find you through powerful SEO, and smart intake forms make it easy to integrate with Clio, Smokeball, Lawmatics, and MyCase. Never lose another lead. Get your civil bundle, website, SEO, content marketing, and Google Business Profile Management free for 60 days from the legal industry's best end-to-end lead generation platform. Book your demo at getcivil.com. That's get, C-I-V-I-L-L-E.com. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training 
for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C. And get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is 2022, What's White Hot in Cybersecurity? Our guest is David G. Reese, who is of counsel in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania office of Clark Hill, PLC, where he practices in the firm's cybersecurity, data protection, and privacy group. He has devoted his legal career to helping organizations traverse complex environmental technology and data protection challenges. So, Dave, what can you tell us about CISA's new playbooks? Well, as you know, when we speak and write, we always say that everyone should have a playbook, uh, an incident response plan. The president's executive order in May required CISA to publish standard federal playbooks for cybersecurity incidents and for vulnerability responses. So the cybersecurity incident parts of it are for incidents of all kinds, including data breaches, it is the response to the attacks. The vulnerability part is to have a uniform response methodology for dealing with things like the uh, log4j vulnerability. So they were published by CISA in November. Interestingly, right after they were published, the log4j hit. And you know everyone has generally thought that the response was really good to log4j by CISA and within the federal government. So those playbooks may have had a, a part. So again, they're required for covered civilian agencies and, and some government contractors, but they're helpful for the private sector, including law firms. You know, most law firms, particularly mid-sized and small ones, aren't going to need plans as sophisticated as those. But there's a lot of good information there. And, you know, ones with needs for less complex ones can kind of use them to either to, to start or to go through and, and check their existing plan and make sure that they've covered everything. Yeah, they are very useful. And I know that the president's executive order calls for better coordination between government and the private sector. And that has been a thorn forever. It just hasn't really happened. Is it happening now? I think it's better. It still has a long way to go. There appears to be progress. You know, in August, the White House had a cybersecurity summit with top executives of major technology and finance companies, including Google, Apple, JP Morgan, Chase. And there seemed to be, you know, a lot of high level agreement that there should be better cooperation. But of course, one meeting doesn't do that. You know, the proof will be in the pudding as as things move forward. There seems to be a movement toward better sharing of information. One of the things that, that the government wants the private sector to do is to work better with government agencies whenever they have a security incident or data breach. So there are two aspects to it. You know, the FBI and the Secret Service and the Department of Justice generally deal with the law enforcement perspective, finding out you know who did it and whether or not uh, criminal charges can go against them. CISA has the responsibility for the response and recovery. And those, of course, overlap. The push is to get businesses and others in the private sector 
whenever they have an incident to promptly report it and get these government agencies involved. There has been some movement toward making that mandatory. It looks like that may happen in Congress. It was in the defense authorization bill and taken up, but there is uh, pretty much uh, strong sentiment in Congress that there should be required disclosure by providers of critical infrastructure if they have a significant data breach and also a, a required reporting of payment of ransomware. So we'll see where that goes. It's improving, but the jury's still out on how far it's going to go. Dave, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about cybersecurity enemy number one, which is uh, ransomware. Talk a little bit about what's happening in the current government approach in response to all these ransomware attacks. As with the government-private cooperation, I think we're seeing a lot better coordination among federal agencies. Now, of course, with the private sector, you know, absent laws requiring it, the cooperation is voluntary. Within the agencies, the coordination is mandatory if the executive branch requires it, and there's been more of a move toward that. And again, both with the enforcement, the FBI, Secret Service, and DOJ, and with the assistance with response and recovery, the agencies seem to be increasing the way they're working together. One of the things that's happened is it's been recognized that, that you know, cyber threats are national security threats, particularly to uh, critical infrastructure. There's also better international cooperation with you know, the federal agencies working more with foreign countries. And, and we've seen that with ransomware. So as part of this process, CISA has opened a Stop Ransomware website. It's stopransomware.gov. And that's intended to be a one-stop shop for uh, federal information about ransomware from, from various agencies. We've seen a new approach with the FBI seizing crypto ransoms at least a couple of times. I don't know how far that's going to go. You know, we've also seen uh, kind of interesting that the um, federal uh, cyber defense community has been working on uh, protection of critical infrastructure. We've just had some general statements that the Cyber Command has been involved. We don't know exactly uh, what we're doing. Just recently, uh, that it's into this year, we saw the Russian arrest of the uh, Revol ransomware gang members. We'll see how that goes. It's most likely related to the disputes going on now that, that are wider, I don't think we're going to expect that kind of uh, activity in the future. I mean, if that would happen in every country where members of ransomware gangs reside, it would do a lot to stop ransomware, but uh, I'm not holding my breath. Neither are we. There was an article today talking about how ransomware gangs are a little nervous because if the countries really did take this seriously and arrest people and take their cryptocurrency back and all the other things that the Russians did in the case of Revil, including, of course, arresting and charging these people, that would be quite something. They felt fairly secure and they no longer feel as secure as they once did. But let's turn to cyber insurance, which has been in the news lately. When we lecture, John and I, we say it's pay more, get less. Uh, and, and that's really the truth of it. So wh what are the current developments and why is our motto so true? Insurance premiums are going up. That happens often with insurance. Like, you know, after we see a hurricane or something of that nature, 
the property and casualty insurance uh, premiums can go up. One of the limitations of cyber insurance is that it is a newer form of insurance. It hasn't been around for decades, like a lot of the other insurance. And in the traditional insurance, the insurance companies have become very good at underwriting and understanding you know, what the losses are, what the risks are, and how much they have to charge to be able to pay for covered losses and also make money since, the, since their businesses. Over the last few years, and particularly in the last year, the loss history has, has become clearer. And you know, that is in part because of ransomware, because carriers, if there's coverage, are both paying the ransom when that's authorized and the recovery expenses, and, and those have been very high. So that's led to higher premiums. With that, we're seeing more limits. So the total limit under the policy may be lower than it was in the past. There also are sublimits and, and exclusion. So there might be a lower limit for ransomware than there is for the, uh, you know, the policy in, in general. It's also been reported that some insurers are looking more closely at the insured's security telling them that if they don't have things like multi-factor authentication for remote and administrator access, they won't even write the policy. So, I mean, your your summary of paying more for less is accurate, but, you know, it's important to understand, you know, why that is and that there's a reason for it. Well, our carrier didn't really care whether or not we've got MFA in place or not and have, have EDR solutions. So they raised the rates significantly anyway. <laughs> Yeah, and, and that varies. I mean, I, I've had underwriters from carriers tell me that except for very large customers, they don't worry about the details of, of the uh, insured uh, security. But I think we're seeing more looking into that and that it's going to smaller size insureds. Well, that's certainly been our experience, but we're fairly new into 2022. Do you have any suggestions for cybersecurity New Year's resolutions for folks? I do. I just wrote an alert for uh, for our firm on cybersecurity uh, moving into the new year. So, you know, basically what, what I recommend for law firms and other types of businesses and organizations that have established cybersecurity programs, it's a good time to review and update them in light of the threats that we saw in the last year and the advances in um, security safeguards that, that we saw in the last year. For those that don't, it's really an important time to make the commitment to implement a cybersecurity program and, and not just make the commitment, to, but to carry forward with it on a set time schedule. So it's evaluating you know, the plans in light of last year's threats and advances and making sure that they're addressed, as, as well as the traditional review. And my final recommendation is to avoid getting on CISA's naughty list. CISA has published a, a list of bad practices. It's pretty bare bones at this time. There's only three things in it, and, and I'm sure we're going to see increases. But the three bad practices on what I've called the naughty list are not using multi-factor authentication, for remote or administrator access, using end-of-life software, you know, like uh, Windows XP, Windows 7, and at this point, even some of the early versions of Windows 10, and using default and known passwords. 
that's particularly on network devices, you know, like uh, routers, wireless access points and things, and on internet devices. So again, it's a new list and, and it's likely to grow. Yeah, I suspect it's going to be a very long, naughty list by the time they're done with it, because we certainly see a lot of naughty practices all the time. But we sure thank you for being our guest today, Dave. Our listeners may not know that Dave corresponds with us virtually every day and vice versa, and we're always exchanging the latest information. So it really is nice having somebody that we're so entrenched with in writing and, and speaking on the program. That part of our lives is a joy, and it was really nice to have you on the podcast. Thanks. Dave. Okay, I'm always glad to do it. That does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and cybersecurity services at SENSEIENT.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.